Well, let's go ahead and open up with a word of prayer, if we could, please. Our Father, we do give praise to your name, for you are worthy of all glory and honor. It's our delight to come and gather together to worship you and to study your word, to gain understanding as your spirit illumines our minds and shows us the truth. So, Lord, I pray that you would uh, bless this time, that it would be pleasing to you, and that we would grow in our understanding of the book of Daniel. Thank you so much for the opportunity we have to open the scriptures week after week. I pray that you would use it to grow us and encourage us and strengthen us, give us the right perspective. So, Lord, uh, thank you for this time. May it be a blessing to those who hear. First in Christ's name, amen. This is our second week in the book of Daniel, and like we did last week, this will be more of an introduction. We'll get into uh, the opening verses next week, but I kind of want to go through some more introductory material. And the reason I usually do this at the beginning of a book is to help us gain, um, you know, where are we in history? What's going on? Uh, what is, why is the author writing this book? Um, who wrote it? And, you know, what do we know about him? And um, that, in my mind, it helps me to frame what we're going to talk about. And so um, I'm needful of it, and hopefully it helps you. Um, but I need some orientation whenever I begin to teach a book. Um, if I don't do that, then I'll tend to go off on my own tangents and not so much go according to what the scripture teaches. So what I put at the top of your sheet is what we looked at last time, just again to try and gain orientation. We looked at a lot of details last time, but here's kind of the 10,000 foot view of what we looked at. And we, we started back at King Solomon because that's where the, um, the two nations, Israel and Judah, really got their beginning. 931, Solomon dies, and the kingdom is split into two, with uh, really uh, the southern tribes being mainly Judah, or all of Judah, a little bit of Benjamin, and then probably some Levites, and then the northern kingdom being the rest of the tribes. And as it says here, the northern kingdom was taken in to captivity by the Assyrians in 722, just a little over 200 years later. So if you can, you know, you put that in context, the United States is more than 200 years old. And by this time in our history, the northern kingdom was done. They were in captivity, they no longer existed, they never exist again um, as a nation. Um, we do believe that when we get over to Revelation, there will be people from every tribe of the Israelites there, but not exactly sure how they know that, um, but I do believe they will know, um, but we're not given, you know, when is that open back up? Uh, to the greatest of my understanding, what I understand is when Jerusalem was captured, that the uh, 
history of the Jews, which tribe are you from, really, um, was hidden and is still hidden today, along with the ashes of the, uh, of the brown heifer cow that would initiate sacrifices. So I believe that sometime during the tribulation time, those have to be found. Otherwise, they couldn't restart the sacrifices. So um, I could be wrong, but that's just kind of the way I think about that. And when that happens, um, then people will go to Ancestor.com and trace back to where they were in the Jews because we'll have more information up until the time when the temple was destroyed, which is only 2,000 years ago. So we have pretty good history from that time till today. Um, so uh, anyway, in 722, the northern kingdom is captured. And then we talked about about that same time is when Hezekiah comes on as the king of the southern kingdom. And what's significant about Hezekiah is that God specifically tells him, well, actually through Isaiah, that um, through Jeremiah, that's not right. It's through Isaiah, tells him that um, they're going to be captured by the Babylonians, that they're going to go into captivity and that all their riches and all will go to Babylon. Um, God tells Hezekiah that because he's proud and he shows um, some people who came from Babylon to visit him. Actually, the son of the emperor of Babylon came to visit him and he showed him all the treasures. So why would he expect them not to come and raid them and take all their treasures? So, very significant that God says that way back in Hezekiah's time, 695 B.C., Manasseh, Hezekiah's son, becomes king. And what's significant about Manasseh is that when you get over to when they're actually taken captive by Babylon, God tells them it's because of the sins of Manasseh that he was so evil um, and did things that God says he will not forgive. Um, so it's really Hezekiah's pride and Manasseh's um, uh, filthiness that causes God to give up on the southern kingdom. Um, so we talked about this, that Nebuchadnezzar comes to Jerusalem multiple times. The first time he comes is in 605 B.C., and that's when Daniel apparently is taken captive. We, we're not given that in the scriptures other than Daniel, when he dates his book that we'll look at next week, uses a time that is eight years before um, what we're given in Kings where the people of Jerusalem are carried off to Babylon. So there must have been um, a raid or um, an imposition eight years before, otherwise Daniel couldn't be in Babylon. Um, so Daniel was taken in 605 BC. Eight years later, Ezekiel is taken, and that's the one where you see um, the books talking about uh, Nebuchadnezzar coming and leading the nobility captive and taking them to Babylon. Ezekiel's in that band. Um, Daniel was taken seven years earlier where they take all those who are handsome and 
capable and they're going to train them to be leaders in their in their country um, so Daniel goes in the first group Ezekiel goes in the second group seven years later and then five years later when Ezekiel turns 30 is when he begins his prophecy um, so Daniel probably about the same age as Ezekiel so taken to Babylon probably when he's 16 17 years old something like that um, so that's the way the dates work. Um, you know that um, ultimately the destruction of Jerusalem comes in 586 BC. So a good 10 years after Ezekiel is taken before Jerusalem actually falls. And that siege of Jerusalem took almost three years. So um, don't know exactly what that looked like. Um, we can. Um, you get a little bit of that in scripture, but not a lot. You just know that they were, the people were pinned in the city for a long time before it was actually destroyed. Um, when you get over to 70 AD and you talk about that destruction that came at the hands of the Romans, it again took years to accomplish because Jerusalem is well fortified. And basically what they did is they starved everybody to death in Jerusalem so that ultimately they could burn the gates and, and charge the city because uh, the people had no food. Um, so um, that's kind of what we looked at last week to get a framework for where we're talking about when we get to the book of Daniel. Daniel opens in 605 B.C. Ezekiel opened in 593 B.C. So we're 12 years before where Ezekiel started writing when we come to Daniel. Now, Daniel does not write um, this book until 70 years later. So when Daniel is writing the first six chapters, uh, well, yeah, the first six chapters of the book, he writes in third person, like he's writing about himself, but he never says, I, Daniel. He says, Daniel was given this or Daniel was given that, just like you would say that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were given things or they did things. He writes in third person for those six chapters because he's remembering what happened 70 years ago, okay, for the first six chapters. Then when you get to chapter seven, he begins to use first person and says that I, Daniel, saw this or I, Daniel, did this. Um, so he's writing after he's probably 85 years old when he writes this book. So very old uh, by, ancient, by standards of this day and time. And um, we'll see that as we go through Daniel that in, um, I think it's chapter nine, he'll say, um, I was reading the scrolls and one of those was Jeremiah and I came across the place in Jeremiah where he said, that will go into captivity in Babylon for 70 years. And it's been 70 years when he's reading that. So he says, oh, the time for us to be released is at hand. And so he has this long prayer, a beautiful prayer to the Lord. And the Lord sends the angel Gabriel to answer that and gives him a vision. And that's where he begins to write about the visions that he, he gets from God. So... Um, that, that's the, the way the dating of the book works. Now, um, 
Look at uh, Daniel 7:15, and I'll, I'll show you what I'm talking about. All, all the way up until this time, this is the first time where Daniel names himself. Look at, look at the last verse of chapter 6, 628, where it says, So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So you see he's writing third person. He's talking about himself, but he's saying this Daniel. So writing in third person all the way through the first six chapters, but then you come to 715, and he says, as for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and visions in my mind kept alarming me. So he begins to write in first person. You can see the same thing over in chapter 8 and verse 15, where he again says, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. So he's writing, beginning in chapter 7, for things that have just happened um, very recently. And it's when he begins to have these visions that are given to him by God. And um, it's kind of interesting, because Daniel's given this vision, and he says, okay, okay, I see the vision, and I described it. What does it mean? And thankfully, in the book of Daniel, we're giving not everything, but we're given a lot of what the interpretation of these dreams are. So it helps um, to, to know, not only are, do we see the visions, but we're given the interpretation of, not. I'm gonna tell you, not everything. Some of it we'll have to try and fill in, but a lot of it is given in the actual book itself. Now, um, so there's a lot of, I'd say, controversy that this book was not written in the 6th century BC, which would be the 500s. Um, and if you take Daniel having been in captivity 70 years when he be before he begins to write this book, then it's written something like 535 BC, which would be the 70 years after he went into captivity in 605 BC. But there are a lot of pushback on that. It, ha always, it has been that way for a long time, and it's even heightened today that there are a lot of people who say this book was written in the second century BC, meaning written between 100 and 200 BC. And the reason they say that is because when we get over to chapter 11, and he starts detailing the wars, um, and mainly the wars of the, of the Romans, as they come to power, some of the Greeks also, um, they say there's no way that Daniel in 535 BC could have understood that and known that and written about it. Not possible. Had to be written after that history because there's over, in chapter 11, I believe there's it's over 100 direct, specific prophecies that were fulfilled in history are given. And they're just like, that's not possible. So there had to be somebody who was an imposter who came between 100 and 200 BC, called himself Daniel, but was not the Daniel of Scripture. Because this Daniel of Scripture is not only found here in the Bible, he's found in the, in the Persian documents and in the Babylonian documents. You find Daniel's name. 
So uh, they say it can't be that guy. It has to be somebody who was uh, impostering him between 100 and 200 BC. Um, I throw that out because Daniel gives us the dates. Um, as we go through this book, he'll say in the first year or the second year of Darius, that kind of thing. Um, so he gives us the dates when he's seeing these visions. And I personally believe that it's Daniel who wrote them. Um, but the, I'll tell you, that would be a minority position today. Mo most of the scholars, if you'll use that term, um, certainly the liberal scholars do not believe that. They believe it was written between 100 and 200 BC. So we'll ignore that and turn to the words of Jesus Christ in Matthew 24, where he confirms that it's Daniel who wrote this book. So you look over at Matthew 24, and you know, and this is Jesus's um, prophecy of tribulation in Matthew 24, when they, they're standing outside of the temple and he begins to prophesy about a time that is worse than any time has ever been before and that if God didn't cut it short, either, even the believers would be deceived. And so, but he cuts it short, so that won't happen. But in 2415, when he's writing about this, he's, or beginning to speak about this, he says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, and those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. All right, so if Jesus Christ in somewhere around 30 AD speaks these words, then that means they have not yet happened. So, um, I mean, we'll see that Antiochus Epiphanes did a lot of the things that are written in the book of Daniel in the second century BC, but that's not the fulfillment of Daniel. It may be the foreshadowing of Daniel, but it's not the fulfillment, because here comes Christ 200 years later saying, when you see this, meaning it has not yet happened. And so, and he, and he says, Daniel, wrote this. And so I'll trust that as to who wrote this book and when was it written as opposed to what the liberal scholars say. And so Jesus confirms that Daniel wrote it and he wrote about the abomination of desolation. Now turn over to Daniel chapter 11 and you'll see where this abomination of desolation is actually spoken of speaks of it a couple of times, but Daniel 11, down in verse 31, this is one of the major points. You notice that this is almost to the end of the book before he uses this same term, but he says, forces from him will arise desecrate the sanctuary fortress and do away with the regular sacrifice and they will set up the abomination of desolation. So that tells us a couple of things. 
First of all, before the abomination of desolation, there are regular sacrifices, meaning the Jews have restarted the sacrifices. And this would be in the tribulation time. We'll put dates on these things when we go through Daniel. But during the tribulation time, probably in those first three and a half years of uh, false peace, the Jews will restart the sacrifices because this, in, in this point, he puts a stop to them. Okay, so it, that, it tells us that. And if the Jews are going to restart a sacrifice system, that means there has to be a Jewish temple during the tribulation times because they can only do sacrifices on the altar, which would be in the, temp in the temple. So it gives us some information, even though he doesn't say it, that you know has to be true during the tribulation times. Now, do they build that temple before the tribulation or during the tribulation? We don't know. But we know this, that a temple gets built and they start the sacrifices. And this character who we'll see come, who comes on the scene will stop those sacrifices and he'll create what's known as the abomination of desolation. Now, one other t place in Daniel does he give us, give us this, and it's right at the very end of the book, in chapter 12, in verse 11. So at the very closing verses of the book, he says, from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Now, if you take 360 days in the Jewish calendar and you multiply it by three and a half years, then you come up with this number. So that's what's going on. This happens at the middle of the tribulation and the abomination of desolation takes place and then until the end, 1,290 days, and then you'll notice he says 45 days later that if you live through all of that, then you're blessed. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days, 45 days later. So what's going on in those 45 days? Your guess is as good as mine. Okay, what I think is happening is that after a bunch of battles, and after Jesus Christ comes and he slays all those who are in the Valley of Megiddo, and you got lots of blood, and all, it takes a little while to clean that up before you actually begin the millennial reign, um, which we talked about all through Daniel. This is where the millennial reign begins, is after this time, after those 45 days. So this is the establishment, I believe, of the millennial reign. It's those times when we saw where uh, Jesus comes and he takes out the leaders of the Israelites because they have been all about themselves, where he separates one sheep from another. That's, I, I believe that's what's happening in these 45 days. And if you live through that and you're in the kingdom of God, you're very blessed. And that's what he's saying. So, um, don't know that's exactly right, but that's the way that I view it. I mean, I kind of look at it this way. If they give you days 
and dates and that kind of stuff, then you need to try and come to some conclusions about what you think about those. You can't just say, well, I don't know, you know. You, you ought to try and determine in your heart what you think is happening. You may be wrong, but at least you've, you're, you're thinking about it and you always remain open to what somebody else may say, but you gotta have reasons for why you hold on to what you hold on to. And I believe that's true in not only just daily living and you know, why do you live this way? Well, because I think it's the right way. Well, that's not a good reason because the scriptures direct me to, that's a good reason. And same way with tribulation. If the scriptures give you dates and days and those kind of things, they're given for a reason. And so that's one of the reasons I like to dive deep when we go through books like Ezekiel and Daniel, because it helps you come to conclusions. And uh, it doesn't mean you're right, right? I never claim to be right in all these things, but I have come to conclusions. And until someone gives me a better argument, I'm going to stand on those. And I always, I mean, I've, I've read the ones who disagree with me. And I just don't think their arguments are very good. Um, some I have to think about for a while. But um, anyway, the, the things that I will speak to you out of the book of Daniel are things that I've thought about, that I've studied, that I've researched, I've read what the opposing views are, and I've come to the conclusions that I'll present. Um, so I just have a need to do that. I don't know if you do, <laughs> but when they start talking about days, I, I got to think about it, and it's got to make sense to me. Um, so, and you know, it, one of the hard things, and you'll see this as we go through this, the Jewish calendar is 360 days a year. It's not 365. So when you start numbering things, you get off a kilter. And the way that the Jews make up for that is every now and then, whenever the Sanhedrin thought it was appropriate, they did a 13-month calendar instead of a 12-month calendar. Otherwise, your harvest and Pentecost and those kind of things would get out of sync. So every now and then, when it was needed, they would have a 13th month in their calendar and the year would be 390 days instead of 360 days. So, and we don't know when all those were. We know when some of them were, but we don't know when all of them were. And so we'll, we'll play with that as we go through this. Go ahead. Well, that's the 13th month, right? Yes. That one of these years had 13 months. Mm -hmm. One of the, you know, the three and a half year thing. Another place is specified the Great Tribulation will be 1260 days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we'll try and reconcile all those, okay? Because, I mean, like you say, you got to think about it and you have to look at what it says and then do your math. You know, when you get over to tribulation, um, they use years, not days. Uh, time, time, uh, a time, times, and half a time, three and a half years. Time being one, times being two, half a time being a half. So one plus two plus a half, 
three and a half. That's the, that's the language used in the book of tribulation. There are a couple of places where it does use days, but mainly it uses that kind of terminology. We'll look at that, I promise. We'll look at all that. Because, again, you need information to come to conclusions. So we'll, we'll try and do that. Um, so Daniel is taken into captivity at the beginning of the book by Nebuchadnezzar. And he's there during the Babylonian reign, a lot of it. Nebuchadnezzar came to power. Um, his dad, Nebuchadnezzar, was uh, king of Babylon, but not as powerful as it was under Nebuchadnezzar. In 605 is when Nebuchadnezzar becomes king of Babylon because his dad dies. And that's when he goes in and takes the first people from Jerusalem. It's also when the Assyrians are defeated by the Babylonians, somewhere between 605 and 607. So when the Assyrians, you remember this, took the northern kingdom, they then invaded the southern kingdom. But Hezekiah was able to push them back, and they didn't, weren't able to take Judah. But they were the significant power in the region for all those years until Nebuchadnezzar defeated them. And he doesn't just defeat them, he decimates them. And we saw this when we were going through Ezekiel. He decimates them, he decimates, you remember uh, the sons of Ammon, he decimates the Moabites, he does the same to Tyre and Sidon, he does the same to Egypt. I mean, he just wipes out the whole region, and ultimately Jerusalem also. Um, so Nebuchadnezzar comes to power, and Daniel is a significant player in the hierarchy of Babylon all the way through Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Matter, matter of fact, Nebuchadnezzar listens to Daniel more than he listens to anybody else in his own kingdom, even though Daniel's a Jew. And then when Nebuchadnezzar dies and his son, Belteshazzar, becomes king, it's, it's he who has the vision of the writing on the wall, that Daniel interprets it, and that very night the Persians come in and destroy or take the kingdom of Babylon, and then Daniel becomes significant in the Persian reign. And it's the Persians who allow the Jews to go back to their land after the 70 years that Babylon didn't allow them to go back. So Daniel is a significant player in both the Babylonian and the Persian governments. He, he is well thought of, he's well respected, you, I don't know if you remember this, he's given a ring, he's, a purple robe is put on him. I mean, he is elevated to the highest position in these governments of these people who are not his kin. You know, he's a Jew and they're uh, Chaldeans and then Persians. Um, so God favors him greatly. And I think one of the reasons God does that is so he could write this book for us. Otherwise, we wouldn't have, and this, this fills in the, what happens before Ezekiel, you know, the millennial kingdom that he writes about, 
after the destruction of Jerusalem that he writes about, but that's the destruction by Nebuchadnezzar, and then we jump all the way to the end times, the millennial kingdom. So what happens in between? Daniel happens. So Daniel fills in that gap for us. So um, Daniel has, Daniel and the people who he's associated with have multiple dreams and visions in this book. And I've got listed here seven of them. And you'll see some of them are Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. Um, so Nebuchadnezzar has this dream at the beginning that has this great statue. And he talks about the head of gold and the um, chest and arms of silver. And I can't remember them all, but he goes through all these different um, types of metals until you get to the feet, which are made of metal and clay. And those are representative of nations and kingdoms. So we'll go through those. And you can be very specific about what these mean because the interpretation of the dream is given. Now this is a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, forgot what he dreamed, and then ridiculously tells the wise men, I want you to tell me what I dreamed, even though I can't remember what I dreamed. And so Daniel's the only one who can do that by the grace of God. Um, so that's where Daniel first gets recognized. And then Nebuchadnezzar has this other dream of a tree, massive tree, covers the whole earth, it says, that's cut down, but the stump is left. And that's a dream that Nebuchadnezzar has about his own downfall. That for seven years, I think it's years, it just says periods of time, um, Nebuchadnezzar goes insane, basically. Uh, stays out in the field like a cow, his hair gets matted down, his fingernails and his toenails grow so long they become like claws. Um, he's a wild animal for seven periods of time. And then he comes to his senses, and that's the stump getting new sprouts. And I believe that Nebuchadnezzar, in that time, actually trusts the Lord. And because you'll, you'll hear it, you'll read his words, and you'll say, that's got to be a believer, the things that he says. And I believe he actually is at that time. Even though he's been arrogant through his history, he was an idol worshiper, no doubt. That doesn't mean he can't be converted later in the book. And so I actually believe when we get to the eternal kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar will be there. I could be wrong, but just by his own words, I, I think so, after his seven years of insanity, because he recognizes what has happened to him and that Daniel prophesied that it would happen just like that. Um, so, and then the third vision is that of Nebuchadnezzar's son when he sees the writing on the wall. And basically it says, your kingdom is required of you today. And that night, he loses the kingdom. And that day and the night before, they have been taking the articles that had been captured in the Jerusalem temple and they were using them to toast one another. And so God puts a stop to that by taking the kingdom from him and giving it to Cyrus of Persia. 
And then the next, the, the last four visions are those that Daniel is given. And those are the no, most significant ones. These are the ones that everybody struggles with. The others aren't so hard because they've been fulfilled in history. But these four have not yet been fully fulfilled. Partially, foreshadowed, for sure, not fulfilled. So the first one that's listed as number four here is um, Daniel's vision of the four beasts coming out of the waters. The first three he understands well is the fourth one that we, not only he, but we struggle with. Who is this? And when is it happening? Um, so we'll talk about that when we get to it. That fourth beast is the, the one that has iron teeth and um, is not, has not yet happened historically, I believe. So we'll, we'll talk about it. And then the fifth, or the, the sixth one, the fifth one is a vision of a ram and a goat. And that is basically looking backwards in history also of people who have already existed. And then chapter six, I mean, number six here is Gabriel's vision. It's really given to Daniel by Gabriel. Gabriel comes and visits Daniel after Daniel has been praying, asking God to, uh, I mean, he has this wonderful prayer that we'll spend several weeks on. Um, but then Gabriel comes and talks to him about the 70 weeks. And 69 of those weeks, I believe, have been fulfilled in history. I think the 70th week, we're still waiting for and uh, there are people who disagree with that, but that's okay. I don't have a problem with that. I believe the 69 weeks are actually the time from the decree by Atticus which we'll look at, until the time of Jesus Christ. And I think it's not almost, I think it's precise. I think it's to the day, actually, in precision. So we'll talk about that when we get over there. But I believe that's what the 69 weeks are. They're when Jesus Christ comes. And then, of course, when the Messiah comes, we then have the church age, which puts the 70th week on hold for until the end of the church age, until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Okay? So giving you a preview of what you're going to see. And then the seventh vision of Daniel um, actually lasts for the last three chapters of the book. And this is where all the prophecies about the wars takes place. And he ultimately gets to something that's very significant in Daniel because it's only given in Daniel. Nowhere else explicitly in the Old Testament do you see the resurrection of the dead. But in Daniel, you see it. And we'll look at it in just a moment. So these, the dates and the times and everything that are given in Daniel, I believe are precise and give us the outline of what happens from the time of Daniel, 535 BC, until the time of Jesus Christ. And it's all laid out in living color for us. And 
that's the way I'll teach it. You don't have to agree with me on that, okay? And, and ultimately, and this was the, the first book that I ever gave anybody a chart of, okay? And I'll, it's really a timeline. And I'll give you a timeline as we get later into the book that lays out all these kings and those who succeed them and the 69 weeks and the time of Jesus Christ. I'll give you a timeline for all that stuff because there's no way to keep it straight in your mind without being able to look at a piece of paper. It's just too much. There's too much detail that's given in this book. So we'll look at all those and I'll, I'll give you a timeline and uh, we'll struggle with it together. Because, like I say, I mean, you have, to, you have to work to understand this. Now, you realize there were, there have been kingdoms that dominated the world through history. And you had, I mean, the first ones that we know about are the pharaohs of Egypt, right? Totally dominated for a very long period of time. But then you come to Daniel and you see people like the Assyrians who defeat the Egyptians, and then you see the Babylonians um, who defeat the Assyrians, and then you see the Medo-Persians, the um, countries or nations of Persia and the uh, Medes coming together to defeat the Babylonians, and then um, after them you um, get into these kingdoms that Daniel begins to talk about. And you have, um, after the Medo-Persians, you have the Greeks who come to power under and then expand their kingdom vastly under Alexander the Great. Uh, even take this uh, area that we're talking about in the Middle East as their own. And then after the Greeks, you have the Romans who come to power, and ultimately Rome itself falls, but Constantine moves the capital to, um, what is it called? Uh, well, I know, what the, I know what he calls it, but what, did the, what was it called before he got there? Um, Byzantium, and he changes the name to Constantinople. Today, that's known as Istanbul, in Turkey. So uh, Constantine I moved the capital of the Roman Empire from Rome to Byzantium, renamed it Constantinople after himself. And then they, the, the kingdom of Rome fell and Europe becomes somewhat in disarray. But the kingdom out of Constantine out of, um, it's known as the Byzantine Empire, lasts for a thousand years. So it goes on for a very, very long time and exists until the Ottoman Empire takes Byzantine, uh, Constantinople and renames it instant, instant, Istanbul. Okay, and then the Ottoman Empire exists from the end of the Roman Empire until the end of World War I. So that's all of world history. Those are the main dominant players 
through world history. And then when you come to the end of World War I, they split up the Ottoman Empire. And that's where Turkey came from, that's where Saudi Arabia came from, that's where Iran and Iraq and Morocco and all those countries come from is the dissembling of the Ottoman Empire. So those, those countries are only 100 years old. So that's pretty recent modern history. And then since that time, since the fall of the Ottoman Empire, nobody has been in control. You just have a, I mean, you have the United States, you have China, you have Russia, uh, you know, these dominant powers, but nobody in control of the world, which is what is setting up the time for the Antichrist, where all the world will be dominated by a, a new world power. So this is just the interim period. And up until the end of World War I, there always has been a dominant empire in the world, not today. And so that's what we're living in. And you need to have that perspective as you think about the world, is that this is very different from how it's ever been before, very different, where you have all these significant powers that are divided. It's not, not, never been like that before. So that's the right way to think about your worldview. That should be part of it, of the way that you think about this day and time in which we live. So the Byzantine Empire for a thousand years after Jesus Christ, the Ottoman Empire for 600 years, and then you come to modern history. So um, now the last thing I want to talk about are the major themes in Daniel. And I believe the real theme of Daniel is given in chapter 2 and verse, beginning in verse 20. So early in the book, I think this is what Daniel is really all about. There are people who disagree with me, by the way. But as I think about the whole book, so beginning in Daniel 2.20, Daniel said, notice third person, Daniel said, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. So what is he saying about God? That he's omnipotent, that he's all-knowing, omniscient, and that he's in total control of whatever happens in the kingdoms of men. That he establishes kings, sets them up, it really literally says, and he removes them. So kingdoms are established by God. Now, if you think, well, that's just Old Testament and that's Daniel talking in, in 535 B.C., well, the Gospel of John, no, we'll go, yeah, the Gospel of John with Jesus speaking. John 5, 24. Notice that Jesus said this very same thing 
almost, I mean, certainly it's the same thoughts, but some of the same words. John 5, 24. And this is Jesus. This is a, a very interesting passage in, um, in John. This is where Jesus has um, the fivefold proof that he is God himself. If you ever want to, be, to show someone that Jesus Christ was God, this is the chapter to go to. Because Jesus Christ gives you a fivefold proof of how he is God. But later, after that proof, he says, beginning in verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Okay, I read the wrong passage, but I'll get you to the right one. This is where Jesus Christ repeats the same thing that Daniel says about resurrection of the dead. So I got confused, but look at Daniel chapter 11, chapter 12, the last chapter, the opening verses, and compare this to what I just read, where Jesus says, those who are in the tombs will hear my voice and will come to life some to eternal life, some to eternal destruction. And compare that to the opening verses in Daniel 12. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince, who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. At that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. The only place in the Old Testament where the resurrection of the dead is explicitly given is in those verses of Daniel. Nowhere else do you get the resurrection of all people, some to disgrace and contempt, some to everlasting life. It's the only place in all the Old Testament where you get it. Okay, now I'll make the point that I was going to make about God is the one who establishes kingdoms and powers, sets up kings and tears them down. Romans 13 And this, I believe, is the theme of Daniel. Romans 13, 
the first few verses. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes for rulers and servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. And then he goes on and says, render to whoever. So you can see, I believe in these verses, there are people who staunchly today stand against this, that we're to be in subjection to the powers because God has established the powers. Whether they be evil, as Paul is writing this in the days of Rome, who will cut his head off, execute Peter upside downward, martyred many of the Christians of his day, and yet he writes we're to be in subjection to the powers. So there are people who push against this in recent days very, very hard. But this is the same teaching that Daniel gives, that it's God who establishes power. It's God who's in control. And whether it be for evil or for good, it's still God who establishes them. God establishes Nebuchadnezzar so that he can render uh, judgment on Israel and then establishes Persia that they can render judgment on Babylon for having rendered judgment on Israel. So you don't try and figure that out. God always does what he wants to do and what is right and good. And I believe that's the theme of Daniel, that Daniel is giving all these visions and prophecies and all to show that God is in total control. That's what the book is all about. And so that'll be where we try and go often as we go through this book. So next week, Lord willing, we'll begin with Daniel chapter one, verse one. And then a year and a half later, we'll be done. Okay? Thanks for your time.